Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. By way of introduction, I, wanna, I want you to listen to the words of uh, Apostle Paul, the very person who persecuted the church as he was converted and as he became a servant of the Lord. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me." You know, one of the most comforting truths for us as Christians is the sovereignty of God, knowing that God is in control of everything in our lives and everything that happens in this world. It is comforting because we know who God is, and it is comforting because we know that therefore He has ordained it, so He will do only what is good for His people. But you know, sometimes... Uh, people can have a wrong understanding of God's sovereignty. While they understand that, they then sort of think, okay, so therefore that means that I don't need to do anything as a Christian. That there's no responsibility from my side because God is sovereign and he does what he does. And therefore I don't need to do anything. But quite the contrary, as we look at the pages of Scripture, that, that there's always these twin truths of while God is sovereign, man is also responsible. And especially for the Christian, there are things that he or she must do. And in what we read, um, the words of Apostle Paul, that's what he's saying there. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God's sovereign grace is with me. And yet he says, but... I worked all the more harder than anyone else and did the work of the Lord. So there's this tension of God's sovereignty working in his life, but at the same time that he is responsible to do his work. You know, we see a similar truth in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where it reads, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So on the one side, God works in your life, but at the same time, there is this responsibility on your side to work it out, to, to live out the Christian life. And as we come to really the, the last few bits of this wonderful letter of First Peter, Peter really hones in on that and wants us to realize our responsibility. If you remember, you know, the, especially the last few weeks, uh, he's honing in the idea of how we can stand firm as individual Christians and even as a church in the midst of persecution, in the, in the midst of living in a world that is hostile to Jesus. And in the last couple of weeks we saw, firstly, it's, it's by having a strong church. How do you have a strong church? By First and foremost, having a strong uh, leadership. Not a leadership that, 
uh, in the way that the world defines, but a leadership that model the very chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Elders who are uh, called as under-shepherds, who will give an account to the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. Elders who will humbly serve the people uh, in the church family. And it's not just the uh, elders, but it's everyone within the church where there's this mentality of humbly serving one another, of humbly looking out for each other rather than being focused on oneself. And really, this is God's sovereign care. This is God's goodness in the way he has designed the church this way. And as we function this way, we become a strong church and we grow and thrive and persevere even in the midst of difficulties. And then we also saw last week that it's not just that we are to be humbly serving one another and not be focused on ourselves, but even the circumstances that God has orchestrated in our life. The good and the bad and the ugly, you know, the, the, the people in our lives, the elders in our lives, our brothers and sisters, and even those outside of the church, those who mock us, those who oppose us, this is all functioning, this is all orchestrated under the mighty hand of God. And so he says, listen, this is also God's care for you. Because through this, what God is doing is he's purging out your sin and my sin. He's purging out our pride. And so this is good for us. This is God caring for us. And so we should continue to rely on God and, and serve one another. And in this way, we will continue to thrive. So that's where we ended last week. So now the question comes, okay, so uh, we just humbly serve one another and we just, um, we just cling on to God and trust in his sovereignty and his care. But is there anything else that we need to do? I mean, does that mean that we just sort of just trust in God's sovereign care because he's orchestrating all this? And so Peter, as he's coming to the close of this letter, he wants to emphasize, no, 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 there's still a responsibility that you have as an individual and as a church in the way that you need to live in this hostile world. And he's bringing it, bringing it to a conclusion. He's saying that you still have a responsibility. And he brings this, he couches this responsibility uh, within the context of uh, of something else happening in the background. It's almost like he's been talking about suffering all this while, and now he sort of uh, peels away the curtain and he says, hey, listen, I want you to understand there's this big war that's going on. This spiritual warfare that's going on. Yes, you cannot see it, but it is very much real. It is very much ongoing. And you need to be aware of it. And in light of that, I want you to understand your responsibility, even though God is sovereign and he's sovereignly caring for you. I've titled this morning's sermon as Stand Firm in the Faith. And by uh, way of outline, I've got two points. What you must do in verses 8 and 9 and what God will do in verses 10 and 11. And really, this, 
this again brings that picture of how we can continue to stand firm and persevere in this hostile world as Peter is closing this letter. So let's just look at our first uh, point, our responsibility, what you and I must do, verses 8 and 9. We'll just start with verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's saying, see, because of the spiritual battle that's going on, you need to be sober-minded. Now, Peter has already talked to us about being sober-minded in a couple of other places in 1 Peter. We saw this in 1 Peter 1.13. We saw it again a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 4.7. So one last time as he's concluding, he's saying, hey, I want you to understand and remember, you need to be, as Christians, sober-minded. And it's the idea of not being intoxicated, but being clear-minded. Peter is saying, don't be drunk with all the things that this world may have to offer. Don't be drunk with all that's happening in this world. You know, there's times when you go through difficulty and the world may tempt you into thinking, hey, it's much better to just live like everyone else in the world than follow Jesus. Don't, don't be thinking like that. Don't, be, don't, don't take in things like that. Don't be drunk on things like that. Don't be intoxicated by us, by your sense of self-importance. Don't be so focused on yourself, you know, seeing this picture of yourself and perhaps even the difficulties you're in and there's no God in the picture. Don't see yourself that way. Don't be so full of fears and anxieties because of all that is happening in your life. Don't have a mind and heart like that that's just left loose and not under control and just being bombarded by the things of this world and filled with fears and anxieties. Don't let your mind be loose like that. He says instead, be sober-minded. Be self-restrained. Be self-controlled in your mind and heart. See, and when your heart and mind are controlled, it's not being bombarded, it's not being let loose by its emotions and you know, every kind of thought and it's just let loose like that. When it's self-controlled, your mind and your heart, what happens? You become clear-headed. There's a, there's a clarity of mind. You see things clearly, spiritually speaking. You clearly see who you are and your place in this world. You're able to clearly see who God is and, and that he indeed is in control of all things in this world. You can clearly see that all the people in your life, all that is happening in your life, including the difficulties in your life, is as a result of God being in control. But you also understand that there are enemies around as well. You see, 
God is sovereign. God is in control of even our difficult circumstances. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care for you. That doesn't mean he's evil. God is not doing things to harm you. But you know what? What you need to be aware is there is indeed another enemy. He is invisible. You may not be able to see him with your visible eyes, but he is very much present. And so therefore, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be clear-headed. And he goes on and says, so be sober-minded and be watchful. Watchful, it, it literally means don't be lulled into sleep. You know, don't be lulled into thinking that just because God is sovereignly caring for you, that there is therefore no need for you to do anything. You see, behind the difficulties and the opposition and the persecution that you're facing for following Jesus, there is actually a spiritual battle going on. Don't be lulled into thinking there is no danger, spiritually speaking. Don't let your guard down. Don't let your mind just loose. Don't be asleep at the wheel. No, Peter says, you need to be clear-headed and you need to be watchful. You need to be vigilant. You need to be aware of your present danger. You need to be spiritually alert and not spiritually asleep. Because really, with all the difficulties and the opposition that is coming your way for following Jesus, it's because of a great enemy. And really, if you look at the second part of verse 8, Peter now gives a vivid description of uh, our enemy. He says this, verse 8, the second part. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See, here's the reason why you and I need to be sober-minded and alert because of our spiritual enemy, Satan. Now, yes, Satan is a defeated foe. Peter made that very clear at the end of chapter 3, if you remember that when Christ died on the cross, he went to even the demons that were imprisoned to tell them, hey, my victory, this is, this is what's happening. I'm victorious. And so as Christians, we're, we're free from you know, Satan's dominion because of what Christ has done on the cross. And that ultimate victory against Satan is sure. You know, and it'll be fully realized when Jesus returns. But until that time, until that time when Jesus returns and that full victory against Satan is fully realized, we are very much at war with Satan and his forces in this world. And look at how Peter describes uh, the enemy. First he says, your adversary. This is a term for anyone who you know, opposes the stand you take. So if you take a stand, the, the adversary is the one who will aggressively be hostile to you and try and knock you out. 
So he's really the, the enemy. The enemy who opposes our faith and anyone who stands for God's purposes and his name. He's the enemy who seeks to harm us spiritually so that the unity in our church is destroyed. So that our testimony, both individual and corporate, our gospel effectiveness, all of that, this enemy, this adversary seeks to destroy and take down. And really what he wants to get at is the Christian faith, your faith and mine. He wants to try and destroy that. So Peter says, he's your adversary. He's your personal adversary. And then a second term he uses where he says, the devil. Now, devil, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Satan, which is translated Satan. And really what it means is a a slanderer or, or a false accuser. He's someone who accuses us to God. Look at um, Revelation 12, 10, for example. Satan is called as the accuser of the brethren, bringing false accusations to God uh, about his children. And he does it day and night, continuously does this. You know, another example I can think of is, is Job. You know, Job 1, 9 to 11, you know, Satan falsely accuses Job. And what, what does he tell God? He says, oh God, Job is not really devoted to you. No, he, uh, you know, the only reason he follows you is because you have blessed him so much. Because, because you know, you blessed him with a family, you've blessed him with all these possessions and all these other things. That's the only reason he is following you. And you know what? If you take all those things away, he will not follow you. And he's sort of accusing uh, Job, saying, yeah, he's not going to do that once you take all this away. Falsely accusing Job to God. So in this way, Satan is continuously making false accusations to God about God's children. You know, he hates the fact that he cares for them and he loves them and he forgives them. So he he brings different things. Oh, you know, they're not like this. They're not like that. They're not going to do this. But you know what? That's why I love um, the verse Romans 8.33. And it should be of great comfort to us. Because it, what does it say? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer? No one, not even Satan. No accusation of Satan will stand up against God because of what God has done through Christ. So Satan accuses uh, man to God, accuses his children to God, and he does this continually, but he also accuses God to man. You know, where he'll come to his children with, with doubts about God and his character and his word. And, and he tempts his children to not then follow God. I mean, remember in the Garden of Eden? He came as a serpent. 
And what does he say? Did God really say? I mean, did he actually say that? Is that really what he meant? Does he really have your best interests in mind? So Satan or, or the devil, he's the, he's the slanderer or the false accuser using lies and deceptions to bring down God's children and he, he is continuously at this. And then Peter goes on to describe the devil as a roaring lion prowling around to seek someone to devour. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you knew that uh, lion was prowling around in your neighborhood and you can hear him roaring? I mean, you'd be foolish to not be clear-headed in your thinking, hey, that's a great enemy right there. And to be on full alert. You'd be foolish not to do that. And that's essentially what Peter is saying. One commentator put it this way. Peter portrayed the devil here as a roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. The devil roars like a lion to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. If believers deny their faith, then the devil has devoured them, bringing them back into his fold, end quote. And so that's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to bring persecution and all these different trials for Christians who are following Jesus faithfully. Why? Because he's trying to destroy Christians and their faith. He's trying to get them off course. That's his agenda. You know, oftentimes there can be two extreme views of, of Satan. You know, on the, on the one hand, sometimes people can have no consideration for Satan. You know, where people almost never think of this great danger. Almost never think of this, this, this great war that's going on, this spiritual war that's going on in the background. And some would even say that, oh, Satan can't do anything to Christians. Oh, Satan can certainly hurt Christians. He can tempt them to not want to follow Jesus. He can tempt them to doubt God and his word. He can, he can tempt them in ways by which a church and even individual Christians, their very witness can be destroyed. He can pit Christians against each other by somehow feeding on our fleshly desires and our pride where we sulk and do things and then we see another brother or a sister and some sin issues and then we go, we start fighting and there's discord. And it breaks the unity within the church. So there's many things that he can do. So there's a real danger there with Satan. 
But if one extreme view is to not consider Satan at all and Satan and his devices, on the opposite end is the other extreme view where everything is about Satan's doing. So much so that even when people sin, they blame Satan and say things like, oh, the devil made me do it. Oh, it wasn't me. And, and somehow in this sense, they excuse their sin because it's all Satan, you know, I, I'm goody two shoes. But that's an unhealthy view as well. So here's how Satan works. I mean, think about Satan. You know, he, he's, he, he's not equal to God in any sense. He's not, you know, God the positive and Satan the negative. No, he's nothing like God. He's not present everywhere. He can be only at one place at one time. He doesn't know everything, but he certainly knows a lot of things because he's been around for so many years. And he's certainly not the most powerful. God is the Almighty. But yeah, so Satan can only be at one place at one time, but he does have an army. He does have his minions, the demons. And so the way Satan works is sometimes he'll personally attack the person. So in the case of Jesus, in the case of Job. Other times he uses demons to tempt God's children. And still other times he is the influence behind the, the world system that is against God. So the opposition and the persecution that comes against Christians through people, through godless people, is really behind the scenes. It's Satan's influence in this godless world that is against God. And so Satan, through temptation and deception and power and influence in this world, he appeals then to our, our sinful flesh, which can then cause us to sin and be unfaithful to Christ. And so what we need to realize is this. Satan's end goal, his prime objective, is to see the name of Jesus marred and to make sure that individual, individual Christians and churches go off track and don't follow Jesus. He really wants to attack the, the faith of Christians. And really, Peter would especially know this from his own experience. You know, his own experience where Satan tempted him and he fell miserably. Turn to uh, Luke twenty-two, thirty-one to 34. Luke twenty-two, thirty-one to 34. This is Jesus speaking to uh, Peter, or Simon Peter, as he was called. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, deny me three times uh, that you know me. Jesus is saying to Peter, Satan has come to me and he has demanded that he sift you like wheat. What does that mean? Uh, in those days, wheat, it was put on this uh, flat um, container where then the wheat is sort of done that. That's called a sifting of wheat. So that where the wheat is thrown to the air and all the chaff sort of is removed and the heavy wheat falls into that flat container. And so what Jesus is saying, Satan, it, Peter, I want you to understand, this is what Satan's going to do. He's going to bring some pressures. He's going to bring some temptations, and he's going to sift you. He's going to rock you. He's going to shake you. And he's going to attempt to destroy your faith. but I love what Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And so your faith will not be shattered. And what happened to Peter? Did he fall into temptation? Did he deny Jesus when the pressure came? Yes, he did. He completely disowned Jesus three times. But let me ask you this. Did his faith get shattered? No. Because he repented and Jesus restored him. Why? Precisely because Jesus prayed for him. And then he became even stronger in his faith. And guess what? Like Jesus said, where Jesus said, and then after you've returned, strengthen your brothers. What is he doing now? He's writing this letter to all the churches in Asia Minor and now 2,000 years after, he's reminding us and he's strengthening us in the faith. To make us aware of this great enemy and the spiritual battle that we are facing. So Peter is telling you and I, be aware of your enemy, Satan. And know that the opposition and the difficulties and the persecution you are facing is because Satan, the great enemy, is behind it. This is his loud roar to frighten you, to try to get you to succumb to him. Through these difficulties, Satan is trying to tempt you to not respond to trials in an appropriate way. He's trying to tempt you to doubt God's goodness and care for you. He's trying to tempt you to look at the ways of the world which seem a lot easier than following Jesus. He's trying to tempt you to deny Jesus and to follow his ways instead and really appeal to our sinful flesh. And just focus on ourselves. And what he's trying to do through that is to destroy your faith and defame the name of Jesus. 
Now, in case some of you are wondering and even thinking and trying to think through some of the things that we've looked at the last few weeks, in case you're thinking, but hang on a second, Benoit. You know, past few weeks and even last week, we saw that God is sovereign. And we even saw that he is ultimately responsible for the opposition and the persecution. Why? Because it's his way of purifying us, of getting rid of the muck in us, getting rid of our pride. But now you're saying Satan is behind all the opposition and the persecution? I mean, isn't that contradictory? No, not quite. You see, God is ultimately sovereign over everything and nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. And really, Satan is just someone who is under God's sovereignty. Satan can't just do whatever he wants. God has to give him permission. Again, going back to Job 1, remember, God had to give Satan permission and he says, you know what, you can do this and do this and do this, but you will not touch his life. I do not give you permission to do so. And Satan says, okay, and then he goes to do his work. Again, in Luke 23, the passage that we just looked at before, we see that Satan had come to Jesus. For what? To ask for permission. Hey, I'd like to have Peter. I'd like to sift him. I'd like to shake him. So God is still ultimately sovereign and Satan needs permission from God to do anything. But at the same time, what we need to keep in mind is this. While God is not evil in himself, nor delights in evil, he uses evil to bring about his good plans for his children. Let me say that again. God is sovereign. Satan needs permission from God to do anything. But at the same time, we need to keep in mind that while God is not evil of himself, nor does he delight in evil, he uses evil to bring about his good plans for his children. Remember last week I briefly mentioned uh, Joseph's uh, response to his brothers from Genesis 50:20, where he looked at his brothers and what did he say? You meant it for evil. So God will hold them accountable for their evil. But at the same time, God permitted that. And God's going to use that evil thing for the good of his people. That's what he says. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Then remember when we went through the book of Habakkuk. You know, as Habakkuk sees the sin in the land of Judah, God says, yes, I'm going to bring judgment. And guess who I'm going to bring? The Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is like, but God, the, the Babylonians, I mean, they're way more wicked. And what, how, what does God respond? God says, well, they're my agent to bring about discipline on the land of Judah. But I will still hold them accountable for their evil actions. Think about Jesus and his death on the cross. 
It was all part of God's sovereign plan. And yet there were evil men, the the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers who put him on that cross. So God will hold them accountable. And yet it was still part of his sovereign plan to do what was good for his people and for his glory. And so it's the same thing here. Satan is behind the scenes bringing about all this persecution and opposition toward Christians who are faithfully following Jesus. He's the mastermind behind that. But God is sovereignly over it. God has permitted it. And he will use that unjust and evil things that are going about in the lives of faithful Christians ultimately for the good of his people. To purify them and strengthen them in their faith. And once Jesus returns and that ultimate victory against Satan is realized, none of this will be there. There'll be no more troubles and no more difficulties. But until that time, we need to understand, as far as Satan is concerned, he is a powerful enemy that is out to get believers. And his intention is to harm us, spiritually speaking, to cause us to not respond rightly to suffering. And he has every trick under the sun because he's been around for a long time. He's been deceiving God's people for a long, long, long time. And so he knows, he knows every kind of trick to discourage us, to, to intimidate us, to, to cause us to doubt God and to give in to our fleshly desires and not follow Jesus. He's the one who's trying to sift you to shake you through all these difficulties to try and destroy your faith. So there's a very real danger, Christian brothers and sisters. And we can't just rest on our laurels simply saying, oh, God is sovereign and he cares for us. Our responsibility is to be sober, to be clear-minded, to be on high alert, understanding the schemes of Satan, our enemy. And then verse 8, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yes, Satan is a powerful enemy, but we don't run away from him in fear. Instead, we actively resist him. James 4, 7 says something similar. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, and this should be an encouragement for us as as Christians. Because it is possible for us to resist this powerful enemy. Because that's why God has written this and has said this to us. He's not just saying this and it's like, oh, okay, he says this, but we can't really resist him. It's precisely because we can resist him. God is saying you need to resist him. Okay, now you say, so how do we resist him? You know, some people foolishly think uh, that means 
you know, saying silly things like, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Or I, you know, I cast you this side. I, I forbid you to come into my area or some kind of nonsense talk like that. You know, it's got no biblical basis. Satan is prowling around and he's been roaming around like this for years and years. And, and none of us can just individually just, just bind him and just command him to not come over here or anything. He, he's much too powerful. He's not going to listen to us. Then how do we actively resist him? Notice verse 9 again. Resist him firm in your faith. See, the way that you and I are to actively resist Satan is by being firm in the faith. By trusting in God, by being firm, by not wavering in unbelief in your trust in God in difficult circumstances. See, Satan thrives on lies and deceit. You know, he brings persecution, and then that's his uh, next game plan. Bring in lies and doubts and deceit and so on and so forth. Why? Because he hates truth. He hates the truth about God and his word. And so he wants to blind everyone. He wants to deceive everyone. And so the, the way a believer then can resist Satan and his temptations and his lies and, and even, the, even during times of opposition and persecution is then by holding on to God and trusting in him and who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is going to do. You know, by believing, yes, but ultimately God is sovereign over all this. God truly cares for me. Nothing has changed from that front. And he will keep us to the end. And then I ask, but how do we trust in God and continue to keep that? Well, one big way is through the armor of God, what we read in our Bible reading just uh, um, sometime earlier from Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. See, through the, through the word of God, and through prayer and even fellowship, through the help of other brothers and sisters, through these means, we continue to focus on God through Christ. And, and, and in this way, when we use those means, we're able to continue to trust in Him, no matter what difficulty comes our way. And the more we trust and obey God and depend on him in prayer and by fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters within the church, we are able to withstand then the lies and the attacks and the temptations and schemes of Satan and his minions. That's how we resist him. And then Peter adds, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. See, Peter is wanting to encourage us. 
He's saying that, you know, when people treat you as a social outcast for being a Christian, when people mock you or slander you for being a Christian, you are not alone. You're not the only one who's going through these kind of difficulties. There are other Christians, other Christian brothers and sisters all over the world that's experiencing this form of opposition from this godless world. It's not just unique to you. And it's really part of being a Christian. It's part of being the family of God. It's part of being part of the brotherhood. It's part of life here on earth as a Christian. And so Peter says, so don't waver in your faith, just like your brothers and sisters around the world. We're all in this together. So be sober, be clear-minded, be on high alert and stand firm in your faith in God and in his word and you will resist Satan by standing firm this way. So that's our responsibility, what you and I must do to stand firm in the faith. But now Peter kind of, as he's concluding, he changes focus a bit more. And he'll talk about what God will do now to cause us to stand firm in the faith, and that's in verses 10 and 11. I'll just read verse 10 for now. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his, marv- to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, Peter just finished saying, trust in God and his word, stand firm in the faith. He's saying, this is, now this is what God will do. I want you to see it now from God's perspective of what he will do. This is man's responsibility. Now let me tell you what God is going to do. And he says, after you have suffered a little while. You know, Peter's talked about this previously at least a couple of times, about how we should view our time on this earth. Yes, sometimes there, are, there may be long seasons, and for some of you, from the time you've been a Christian till the day you die as a Christian, there may be some difficulties and oppositions that you may face because you are a Christian. But whatever it may be, when you compare it to eternity... In comparison to the eternal glory that you and I will experience in future, this life with all its troubles is only a little while. And so Peter is saying, think of your life with that perspective. You know, if you can think of a book, think of the, the, the front cover of the book. That's our life on this earth with all its troubles. And really the rest of the book, that's eternity. 
So life has almost not even begun. It's, it's really just the, the starting bits we're experiencing. The rest of eternity we still have. Peter says, after you have suffered. So again, he's, he's, what's implied there is it's, it's inevitable for you as a Christian that you will face opposition of some kind. Some will face more opposition and persecution. Some will face less. But every Christian, if they are being faithful to the Lord, will face persecution. And really the way our country is moving, and especially even our state, it is possible that the opposition and persecution may become more and more. But either way, unless we compromise and begin living like the world, this suffering is inevitable in the Christian life. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. This is the great cost in living the Christian life, that we will be rejected by the godless world around us. We should accept it, we shouldn't be surprised by it, and it's natural given everything that Peter has told us so far in his entire letter. And so he says, but after you have suffered a little while, you will enter into eternal glory in Christ. This is what's waiting for us when Christ returns. This end time glory where there will be no more suffering, no more sin, no more pain, nothing of the sort. This end time salvation, this end time glory, it's eternal. It will be forever and ever and ever and it will never end. And it is in Christ, it is in as much as we are connected to Christ that God has called us to this glorious end. And really it's a done deal. You know, there's no question on the doubt, you know, if this is going to happen for Christians. And I love the way Peter bases this fact on the character of God. He says, this is your end. Look at how he addresses God and how he bases it on this fact. Because God is the God of all grace. He's the one who has called you to this end. The God of all grace. That's who he is. The God who is the very source of all grace and the giver of all grace. Oh, we need God's grace. We needed it right from the time he called us. And we need it all the way in this life, all the way till when we get into glory. For every occasion in our life, for the small things and the big things, we need God's grace. And God will continue to supply us with his bountiful grace so that we can live for him. He's done it in the past where he's lavishly poured his grace into our lives and he will continue to do that for our present need all the way to our future till we get to glory. Why? 
Why can we be assured of this? Because he is the God of all grace. So there's no reason to be discouraged, Christians. When we face opposition, when we face trials, as we're considered as social outcasts, because we know that God's grace will take us to the end. But in the meantime, while we're on this earth and we suffer for the sake of Christ, God's also doing a work in his children. Look at verse 11 again. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he's going to do something. I, I love that. There's an emphasis there. God himself will do something. It's not someone else, it's, it's not the myriad of angels, it's not the archangel, it's none of those things. God himself will actively be at work in the lives of his children and this is what he will do. And there's four descriptions that are mentioned there that he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. This is how God will supply his grace while we live on this earth and face opposition and difficulties. Now these four words here, they're they're kind of synonymous, things overlap, but there are certain nuances as well and I hope to bring those out. And what it really shows is this, of God's care and his grace toward us during our life here on earth. Let's just look at it one by one. God himself will restore us. That's the first word. This word, it has the sense of to put in order, to to make whole or to repair and put together. It it, it was a medical term that was used used to uh, describe the surgeons that would, you know, set forth a broken bone and, you know, set it together. So it's the idea of putting things together to make an object right and whole and complete. So think of what he's saying. See, with, with all the sin and the pride in us, with all the, the opposition and difficulties from this world and the deception and the, and the temptations of Satan, As we rely on God as God's children, God is perfecting us. He is making us whole. Through all of this suffering, he's perfecting us and removing our sin and pride and making us whole. See, we're we're damaged goods because of our our own sin And, and all that, everything that happens in this world. But what he's saying is God is using all the trials and the difficulties and the persecution to to restore us, to make us whole, to, to make us perfect. One commentator put it this way, God will repair the damage that sin and suffering have wrought. God has already begun that work 
of restoring us, of perfecting us. And as Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will restore us and make us whole and perfect. And he's already begun that process. Next, Peter says, God will confirm you. Now, this word means to make something firm or, or stable or, or fixed. It also has the idea of strengthening something. You know, it, it's the idea of really fixing something or strengthening something or stabilizing something by providing support on the sides so that that thing won't topple off or won't fall off. And so what he's trying to say is, see, God will strengthen you to to not be unbalanced, to not be tossed to and fro in your faith. No, God is the one who's going to cause you to be resolute, to be unwavering in your faith as you go through life in this world, as you face persecution, as you face difficulties, as as you face Satan himself. Now the third word says God will strengthen you. Obviously this is virtually synonymous with the previous, just the word we've looked at. And it doesn't have many nuances. And it has the idea that God will strengthen and empower us even in our weaknesses. You know, even in our inadequacies, when we think we can't do it, no, God will empower us to just keep going. And then the last word, God will establish you. The basic root meaning here of that, that word establish is to lay a foundation and to therefore place a firm foundation. See, if the, if the second word was to you know, put supports around so that uh, to to support this structure, then this word is talking about the the base on which the structure rests on. As one commentator put it, this is referring to the solid spiritual foundation on which God will establish Christians. So it's the idea that the, the, the foundation on which the Christian life is being built, that will be strong and secure. That, that foundation of Jesus Christ, the living stone, that we learned uh, back in uh, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. It's the idea that, see, when difficulties and, and trials and persecution and opposition come our way, God is the one who will keep us secure on this foundation. That we won't be knocked over that we'll be anchored on and bolted on on this strong foundation, that we'll be established this way. No trial, no, no storms of this life will knock you over. So obviously there's you know, overlap of me- meaning in those words. But here's Peter's point. There's going to be suffering as we live as Christians in this world. 
And there's a responsibility on our part. And that is to be sober, to be alert, and to resist our powerful enemy by trusting God and his word. But as we do that, be rest assured that God is at work in you ultimately. He is taking care of you. He is restoring you and he will sustain you to the end no matter what comes your way. Now the commentator, thinking of what these four words meant, uh, said this. The use of those four verbs is not redundant rhetoric. There's an oddly thought development. The first assured the readers that God would keep on perfecting his suffering children so that no defect would remain in them. The remaining three verbs suggest different aspects of his work. God will supply the believers with the needed support so that they will not topple and fall. He will impart the needed strength so that they will not collapse. And he will set them upon an immovable foundation so that they will not be swept away. See, and so knowing that this is what God is doing, even in the midst of this hostile world, shouldn't it cause us to then give thanks to God and give praise to God? Shouldn't it cause us to, you know, take the focus of ourselves and put the focus on God and, and just really bow down and worship Him? And really, that's, that's exactly what Peter does. He, he just breaks out into praise to God. Look at verse 11. He says, To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word here for dominion, it has more the idea of God's power and sovereignty and therefore his dominion. To him who is sovereign over everything, including the trials in our lives and, and the attacks of Satan. To him who, is so, who by his sovereign power will sustain us to the end. To him who, by his sovereign power, is still continuing to do good in us, to make us thrive and finally enter his glory. To him be dominion forever and ever. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I want to end with. Despite whatever difficulty you may face for being a Christian, this is what God is doing through all this. Yes, Satan means it to harm us, but God means it for good. This is all that he's doing, and this is where he's taking you. And therefore, be encouraged. Fulfill your Christian responsibility and stand firm in the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your wisdom. We are thankful for your ways. We are thankful for your word. 
We recognize that there is so much that we need to understand about you and your ways and even your word. But with all that you are revealing to us, Father, we pray that we would, as a result, take it to heart, that we would be of good courage, that we would stand firm in the faith and continue to be your witnesses in this world. For we know that ultimately it is you who is carrying us through. We thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.